Hello and welcome to The Beautiful Game, a show dedicated to helping us face change with confidence and improve a little each day. Beautiful Game is produced by Weasels FC, a community of smart, tenacious, and sometimes underestimated people exploring resiliency in an uncertain world. I am your host, Tony Niccolo. Join me as we learn to live, work, and play better. here today with Nicole Hercules, who's the founder and CEO of the Rochester Soccer School and the Rochester City Soccer League. She also serves as the chair of the United Soccer Coaches Black Advocacy Group, and she's an assistant coach with the Rochester Lancers. She's a former professional player and was a standout at the University of Albany, where she led the Great Danes as captain and invented the signature move, the Herculator, which we'll hear about soon. (laughs) So welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We always uh, start off with a question about the producer of The Beautiful Game, who is Weasels FC. And we like to know what you think of Weasels. Well, now that I know that uh, Weasels FC is involved with this programming, I love Weasels. Weasels are great. (laughs) What a wonderful animal. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got a background in sociology, played at a high level yourself. Like a lot of coaches that we talk to, you were a captain of your team. So obviously, throughout your career, you've been a leader. What does resilience mean to you? And were there coaches along your playing career that taught you resilience or other mental skills? Of course, I remember my college coach saying to me to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And at the time, I never really knew what he meant by that until you know, you're kind of in a business environment, you're in a boardroom and you have to really come up with some quick ideas and some different things and you have to be comfortable, literally comfortable being uncomfortable. So I never really knew what that was, but now as I'm older and I'm able to transfer some of the skills that I learned on the field as a leader into the business world, so many of the things that I learned as a soccer player and for our coaches just pushing us, whether it's training sessions where we're in a conditioning that's really pushing us to to our limit, but we still have to really dig down deep and, and give more than we thought we ever could. All of that plays a vital role in who we become later in life because we had to be resilient. We had to be persistent. We had to set some goals that would, would take us and our teammates to the other level. And a lot of times we had to set that example as the ones who would be willing to kind of go that extra mile for the team. And so what was the transition like for you from leading on the field into coaching? I think it's always been a part of who I am. I think I went straight into social work right after college and I was playing. And for me, it's always been about giving back to the community and being involved in the game in a way where I can see change in people's lives or in communities. So I was right in human service world where I was like, I like what I'm doing, but I don't feel like I'm doing enough. So I think I had the belief from being a leader from the sports teams that I played on where I knew I could do more and I can kind of step out and create something where I would be able to impact more change. So, you know, I, I left human services where I thought, man, I'm doing some good, but I really want to do more. And I just stepped out and formed a business. You know, I wasn't a business major. I was a sociology major, psychology uh, minor. And I stepped out just on a leap of faith and created a couple businesses. And, you know, now I'm able to do the things that I love, but I think it always starts with 
kind of knowing what you have deep down inside and what you're capable of doing and having that self-belief to just step out and do it. So I'd say the leadership component of being in sports really gave me a different type of confidence to kind of do things that most people would be like, you're nuts to do that. How do you teach those skills to the players that you work with now? I'll tell you what, it's one of my favorite things, especially because I work in an underserved community. So having so many kids who talk about resilient, like they are the definition of resilience. For me, it's it's easy to kind of coach the group that I work with because, man, they want to work hard for you. They want they they want to meet expectations. They they want to meet their goals. And I mean, this week is a great week for us because you know, being that we're kind of doing this whole away from school thing, we're actually doing virtual signings. So we have some of our players who have now accepted scholarships. Who I have one of my kids who I've worked with since he was a young kid going to Dayton, and we're doing an interview with him tomorrow. So. <laughs> That's a question I'm going to ask him because, I mean, he's been through everything you can think of. His family moved to Ohio. He stayed here with um, one of the coaches from our league to live here because he you know, has a first-rate education at Brighton, one of the best schools here. So some of the sacrifices he had to make just to get a good education and to play for the DA here, he and his family made some serious sacrifices. There was a cultural shock for him moving from an inner city to a pretty ritzy suburb to uh, to play the game but he and over the years he just really was able to just thrive and was really able to kind of push and stay focused on what his goals were knowing that there's so much more that he wants to accomplish so I would say for my players it's easy the sport just brings something out of kids especially when they're at the elite level and they want to achieve as long as you're a coach that can kind of stay focused on making sure that the mental and emotional aspects of things are kind of met with our players when it comes to training them and the technical aspect and, 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 and being a student of the game, our kids go above and beyond. And you've been able to bring together players who are not necessarily elite as well, where there was um, a bunch of high schools in Rochester, their girls teams were folding. And so you created this and coached this multi-school team that was across different parts of, of the community in Rochester. What, what was that like? Man, you did your homework. Yeah, that, that I'll tell you what, the competitor in me, I had to really put that aside because there's a side of me that I like to win, you know, and I like to make sure that we have a program where if we're not at where we need to be, we're able to kind of build to where we need to get to. So with the girls program in the inner city of Rochester, there hasn't been soccer leagues or soccer programs for them to develop their skills. So we literally have 26 schools that combine to form one team. And I know what you're talking about. We had the news stations kind of come out because we had a phenomenal year. One of the kids that I've coached since he was eight years old, got a full scholarship to Niagara. We had just a talented group of kids, but some of the kids that were talented were kids that like and I was able to grab like a couple of them when they were young and kind of develop them. But then I kind of went off and coached at some other places. So I wasn't able to kind of complete the training with them. Um, I had an international player who came over from Norway. Um, I had a good core of kids who can just kind of play. But I mean, for me, during our season, a lot of it is really about just doing the, the fundamental work. It's working on our technical skills. It's working on our system of play. And for us being that we have kids who... A lot of them, we have seniors and juniors who just wanted to play soccer because they didn't have it before and they're coming out for a varsity team. And because we have so many kids, we were in the highest, the highest bracket, the highest division, which is nuts because we just don't have kids who are playing year round. So we have kids with all the heart, all the talent in the world, a group of kids. And I'll tell you what, I learned so much about myself working with that group because 
those are kids who are just going to do amazing things in the world just because how they approach life. They came together. A lot of them played against each other and didn't like each other, but they can kind of see what coming together could look like. It was really a beautiful thing. Kids of all different races, all different religions. They would get on this field and I, I, I pushed the kids pretty hard. They don't play soccer during the year. So, I mean, I have to try to cover a lot. So we do long sessions, nonstop technical work. It can be monotonous, but I mean, these kids just really dig in and they do the work. And I mean, we knocked off a team that knocked us out and, and destroyed us years before. We started beating teams that used to just kick our butts. And I mean, for me, I had to really recognize that it isn't about winning and losing with some of the programs that I'm starting, but it really is about developing something where kids understand that soccer is important to us. But at the end of the day, I care about your character, I care about your integrity. I care about how you're doing in school. And this girls group, they actually set the standard for us academically for my league. I have a valedictorian every year. I had one the first year, I had two the year after that, and then I had three last year. This year, we didn't have a valedictorian and my girls felt like they were failures, but they're all in the top 10 of their class. So it's like, we can settle down a little bit, guys. You're doing well. Like, don't worry about that. I'm, I'm just glad that, you know, when we set that standard in place that, hey, this is what we want you to, to look at. And um, you have someone who's going to stay with you. These kids tend to want to kind of meet the standard that you're setting for them. And I will say this, when I first came in to, the, to this group of kids, probably four years ago, um, one of the things that they said is that they have coaches who come in, but they never stay. So I promised them that I would be with them until they graduate. So I, my favorite time of the year is graduation time when we get to just take those pictures and really just celebrate who they are and all the work they've done. So that team was interesting. What I got to say, it's, that was tough. <laughs> it's tough as someone who just likes to win and has an idea on what training looks like. You know, when you're trying to change people's mentality towards sports, to make sure that they understand what it is to be an athlete, how you need to think, how you need to train. It's tough. I can say that, but it's, but it's well worth it. I'm sort of envisioning this team. My son is 10 and he's watching this, the show that I think Alex Morgan was sort of a part of called the kicks. And it's about this, maybe it's middle school or, or junior high school team where there's one player who moves to California and she was on a really competitive club team and now is playing for her school team. And she has this really serious view of soccer. And there's another girl on the team who's really good as well, but she's too cool for the game and the rest of the team. And then there are a bunch of other players who are just really keen and want to play. And, and so it, it's this story and, and trajectory of them sort of coming together and figuring out how to play as a team. And the head custodian becomes the coach because he's originally from South America and used to play the game and is now with them and building them. And so I'm sort of I get the sense of the team as being this group of players who comes together around the game and learns about life and, and how to grow up through the game. And that part of the work that you do is sort of, you teach them the game itself, but also facilitate their, their personal growth mm -hmm. through the lens of the game. Am I seeing what happens? I almost think that you might have been at a practice field, like with a camera, because you couldn't have <laughs> scripted it any better. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you just described a couple of my players. Um, so I'm terrified right now because you seem to know. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you're right on. I mean, and, you know, to the point where my player who actually went out to play D1, who was the one who kind of too cool for school, you know, we had conversations about that. I wanted to make sure that she understood that what her talent is in the world and that although she's good at everything, another kid who's phenomenal in school, like things come very easy to her. I was like, for me, that's not enough. Your bare minimum is not enough. I was like, you need to give your all, give your best, 
every single day because at the end of the day, the second you take your foot off the pedal, that next person who may not have the talent you have, who's working their butt off, will take your spot. And um, I remember she thought I was being harsh with her, but that actually happened to her this year. So she called me right away and she's like, oh my gosh, coach, I'm sorry I didn't listen. You were right. But I, I'll tell you the great thing I love about my kids is that they're, I think that's big of some people to be able to admit that and then to ask for help and say, hey, I want to train. I want to make sure that this never happens again. And again, going back to that resiliency, we have kids who just want to be their best and do their best. And when they can see that there's something that they're not doing right, they want to make those corrections to do the right things. That's the things I love about my players. Yeah. Being confident enough to ask for help, I think is definitely an underrated mental skill. Beyond just bringing people into the game, you've also, you mentioned starting businesses and, and the programs that you've started. I want to dive into those more because in many ways you're working, while you're working within the system and, and sending players into the development academies, you're also in a way working against the system where the development academies, who knows what's going on now with the changes in the leagues and those folding, but the institutional version of the game, which only lets people who pay or look a certain way or come from a certain background into the elite pathways, at least easily, you're working against those and sort of building up the game in another way through Rochester City Soccer Schools and the Rochester City Soccer League. I listened to you on the For the Culture podcast and found it really interesting the way that you focused on kids who, in your words, think that soccer is whack. <laughs> As an old man myself, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, some 90s slang has, has survived the test of time. But really, you were introducing soccer to inner city communities. You took away their basketballs and started this program. How has it gone? I love the program. I love the kids. I love my community. We just have phenomenal kids who just needed a league. There was a league that pre-existed us, which was the Flower City Soccer League, but we had some kids who were really talented. Um, and a lot of the resources were poured into those kids, so the league fell apart. So we had a handful of kids who didn't have a soccer league. So what we did is we brought them in. We had a conversation with them about what they would like in a league. If we could start over, what is it that you want to see? So they had this vision of just academic support, college advisement, career development. So a lot of the things you just heard me say have nothing to do with soccer, right? Right. So the best thing I love about my kids is that they get it. Like we're going to create a program, but it, soccer is just kind of the vehicle. It's always ways that we can kind of fill in the gaps to what the needs are in the communities that we're working in. So for me, I was looking at it from the standpoint of I have kids who are going to a school district where there's a low graduation rate. I want to set a high academic standard. How can we make sure that we're doing those? And that's just making sure that I aligned with the Rochester City School District. There are people who I work with. I talk with them consistently. You know, I push them. They push me. We've created a network where our kids know they're supporting and, and, and they know at the end of the day we want what's best for them academically. Um, we also have relationships with the local colleges around. I'm front, because I played, you know, I'm friends with all the local coaches who have played, who coach now. So University of Rochester, Rochester Institute of Technology, Nazareth, St. John Fisher. We have relationships with all of these schools and they invest in their kids, whether it's if they need tutors, they need information on the college process, if they need to do a college visit, if they want to shadow. We've set up these relationships with the colleges and with our school districts so that our kids have everything that they need to succeed in soccer and in life. I'll tell you why we started also is we had four homicides from kids who played in the Flower City Soccer League. So it became a time when I was kind of waiting to see what was going to happen with Flower City Soccer. 
But after that happened, I couldn't wait anymore because it really literally became something that was life and death. So we started the program. And for our older kids, we have this thing called Friday Night Lights, where we play until midnight. Because for me, we have the stadium. The rhinos aren't around anymore. So with our relationship with the city of Rochester and city recreation, we work with them. They give us access to the stadium. And I'll tell you why I love my, my city so much is that they can make a lot of money renting that prime time to any other soccer program around, but they give it to the kids in this community because they recognize when you have caring and, and supporting adults who want to see their kids do well. And we've created a soccer league that kind of fills in the gaps for things that are needed in our community, but also gives kids the opportunity to play soccer. They're like, we're absolutely giving these kids in the city this opportunity. So our mayor's involved. She puts fields in and areas where we have new Americans or refugee families so that they can feel welcome to the community. Because the crazy thing about it is that our community is starting to learn that the way to welcome people in is with the world's game. That's how big our sport is. And it's a beautiful thing that you can put a soccer field in and know that you're going to have people come out and it's a way to just kind of welcome people to the neighborhood. It's nuts, but that's how we've been able to do things. So we have ribbon cut-ins that we're doing this other fields that we'll be putting in throughout our city. But yeah, our kids know that we're investing in them. They know that they're important. There's a sense of pride that they have in the city and the families are, are amazing. You talk about welcoming refugee communities and it's a global game. Is it getting easier to get kids into the game with LeBron wearing Mbappe jerseys and, and the, the rise of Atlanta United? Oh, I, I think definitely so. I mean, soccer jerseys have always been a part of the culture. Like, it's a cool thing. You're seeing Drake wear them. Rihanna's going to games. You have James Harden, who's now an owner. Kevin Durant, who tried to become an owner with DC United. So you're seeing all these basketball guys and people from different sports who are looking at this world's game and saying, I want in. So I think it has helped a bit. I think we even saw Steph Curry hanging out with Neymar. But I also think it's just a great sport that once you introduce it to kids, they recognize it. And I know you probably heard the story that we told on For the Culture, but one of the coolest things that I love about our indoor league is that when we are playing futsal from November to February, again, we take the basketballs out just to explain to those who kind of don't know the story. And we put futsal nets in and we're playing 5v5. And again, it's we're trying to create a safe haven for our kids. So we play until very late. Kids from the community come in and start watching. And like I go live. So some of the kids will come over and become the commentators. And they're these, they have their <laughs> basketballs in hands. And it's hilarious because it really is entertaining. It's high fly. Our kids are very skillful. And it's just fun to watch. We have a great time. As a community, it's fun. You know, sometimes I got to remind myself that I need to, to leave at times. I'm like, I got to get out of here. But it's, it's just so much fun. It's fun for everyone who's watching, especially when we watch the little kids, too. Like I sit with the families and we just have a great time. It really is an amazing community dynamic around the greatest game in the world. You've shared uh, an Ann Landers quote around the idea of the important things that make kids successful are the things that we teach them to do for themselves. I think about a lot of the work that you do in more of the Marcus Garvey sense around the importance of confidence and self-improvement and responsibility. You've shared some stories, but what impact has the game had for your players in terms of making them successful and confident in life? We have, I guess the best story I can use is we have a high school team, school, it's called Word of Encourage. They also go by School 58. They won four back-to-back -back sectional championships. These are kids who, when they were six and, and eight years old, some of the Flower City coaches, Mike Lopez and uh, Jeff Reese, 
we were actually training these kids in what is now an abandoned building. Like, it's like, I'm from the suburbs. So like, this is all like, it's funny like that I'm talking about this stuff because I'm a, I'm a suburban girl who's now like in the city world, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because I've been able to see these kids who in circumstances that I would never want to be in really make the most out of situations. They have full scholarships. They're doing well in school. But the work that I saw them put in since they were kids, training every day in some fields that aren't the best and, you know, you don't have this pristine grass all the time, but they put the work in day in and day out to the point where when this epidemic started, like I knew I had to call my kids and say, listen, I need you guys to stay home. I need you to stay because I already knew what it was like soccer is really the life force for them. And I've been able to watch these kids since they were little boys allow this game to allow them to blossom. It, it brought them confidence. It brought them, you know, a sense of brother and sisterhood. It brought them a sense of pride. And no one can take that from them because they did the work, right? If someone were to say this or that, yeah. no, they did the work and they know what it takes to be successful. You have a positive attitude and you do the work. They, they know that, that's who they are. It's ingrained in them, it's in their DNA. And it's, it, this game gave them that opportunity. So we talk about it all the time. So it's like, it's just little messages that we say to so that it's ingrained in the kids who they are. You're someone who works your butt off. You've earned everything. No one gave you anything. No one handed you anything. You worked hard for this. And you can continue to work hard for everything. And nobody can take that from you ever. You know, and so I think that what you said is, is really important is that people have self-belief, that they also know what they're capable of doing. So that at the end of the day, whether it's on the soccer field or whether it's in the world, they have this deep sense of self-confidence because they know what they can create. They know what they can do. And it just comes from a place of, I've done it before, I can do it again. You're the first woman chair of the United Soccer Coaches Black Soccer Advocacy Group. And I would say in general in the game, I was just talking to Carrie Taylor at San Diego Loyal. And there's not many women in leadership roles in the game in general. So it's great to see you there. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing there and the importance of representation for people to be able to see people like them in important roles and, and what impact that has? And maybe even a little about your own story in terms of what it's been like for you coming up through the game in the suburbs versus the work that you're doing now? Well, I was always the only African-American on many of the teams I played with, but I, I didn't think anything of it because that's just the world that I lived in. So I remember I was, for the Flower City League that existed before me, I remember I was asked to come in and do a, like a skill session or something. I wasn't a coach yet, so I didn't really know what to do. So me, I love Brazilian soccer, so I could teach skills. That's, that's one thing I know how to do. So, you know, I went in with this group of kids and, you know, I was doing the skill session and I gave them probably two minutes to try to take the ball off my foot because I really wanted them to understand the value of repetition of your corner skills, your footwork, whatever, whatever it is that you needed to kind of be able to keep and control the ball. I remember after two minutes, the kids looking up at me like, and one of the girls said to me when I had a kind of chance to speak to them after, she's like, where are you from? I remember like, being kind of taken aback. And I was like, why would she ask me that? But then I thought about it and she kind of explained, she's like, black people in America don't play soccer. So I'm assuming you're from Canada. And that stuck with me to the point where when I was done in college, I always knew I wanted to go back and start a program in inner cities. And it's also why I also started NMH Consulting to be able to go into other urban communities across the globe 
and start programs with what they have that's tangible, that really is able to build players and communities rather than programs so much. I just, I really want people to focus on how they can impact people's lives and communities' lives. And I think when you're talking about representation, it's important for just what I said is because when there are people who aren't seeing themselves playing a sport, they immediately think it's not for them. And that bothered me. That that bothered me to the core where I was like, I will, for the rest of my life, I will make sure that we have representation, that we have coaches, that we have people in the front office, that we have people just throughout the sport of soccer and in business in general who look like these kids so that they can see they can be that. They can, if they can see it, they can be it. So, so, so very important. It's something that I think a lot of people don't think about just because we're so used to what we see every day. But for me, my fight is making sure that we have proper representation so that kids can see themselves in future leaders and so that they can be those future leaders. I think that one of the things that really stands out and the way that you talk about NMH Consulting and you just said building communities, not programs, is the, is the way that you've built sustainable programs is by having private public partnerships, by understanding the ways that you can put the game and its impacts into language that are things that both public and, and private entities want to see happen anyhow, and making sure that you are building a community that supports the league or program or club, whatever it may be in that particular community, means that even if you are not there personally, the programs, the underlying programs are sustainable. And I think that's a, a really important insight and uh, a compliment to the work that you've been doing. Thank you. It's a di definitely a different way to do things. And there's a lot of work that's entailed with it. We did a seminar with the America Scores on how to start an underserved uh, soccer program. And we kind of talked about how you can start a program with no overhead costs. And it really is on leveraging the relationships with people who have a similar vision and goal. And when you bring all these people to the table, you're able to accomplish these goals with people. It's they're actually people and communities that you're impacting and everyone wants to be in a, a part of that because it, it feels not only does it feel good but there's people whose lives you're changing and, and you're watching it and those entities play a large role in it because they're there to do exactly what it is that they're supposed to do and we just kind of come in as a supporter and say hey we know these are the things you want to do this is what we want to do as well let's do this together it's easier and we're stronger together when we do it this way, but we're also able to invest in our people, in our communities, and that's where we see growth, and that's where we see development, and that's where we see togetherness, and it's in a really powerful way. So those are the type of programs I create. I mean, I'll go into any community where I feel like there's a gap, where sometimes people are unable to get grants and resources from like a U.S. Soccer Foundation, which is an amazing program, or other programs that are out there, they have a really hard time sometimes connecting so I like to kind of, what I call it, fill in the gap. My vision is called State of Play, where it just gives kids who are kind of excluded. And I will say this, one of the things I've learned is I don't think U.S. soccer and some of those places are purposely excluding players. I just think that this is a very broad, broad, broad scope of communities that just kind of get lost. So for me, I'm looking for those communities. I'm looking to fill those gaps and bridge, you know, make bridges for them think that one of the reasons why U.S. soccer serves some communities better than others is because there isn't necessarily a culture of soccer 
in America. There is certainly a business of the sport, and there's some nascent support for the sport, but a lot of the past leaders of the black soccer advocacy group at United Soccer Coaches have been immigrants. Kendall Reyes is Jamaican, Lincoln Phillips from Trinidad and Tobago. I don't know my history well enough, but you might even be the first native African-American. I'm the third because Mike Curry would have been the first one and then Hilton Days. But other than that, yeah, you're right. The last three, Sam Apodu is from Nigeria. Kendall and, and Lincoln are from Trinidad. So the last at least 12 years has been, you know, international coaches. So it's been a while since there's been an American chair. So you're right in that regard. Yeah. And are you starting to see a change in the culture itself in terms of is it still mostly refugees and children of immigrants who are the most excited about the game? Well, that's interesting because my parents are from Caribbean descent. So it's, okay. it's that's funny. So I, I always like there's some truth to that thing where, you know, there's like Caribbean and African children that play soccer. But I will say this there are so many American born athletes and coaches that are out there right now. Kadani McAlpin, like we had our leadership call yesterday. He won a national championship with USC. He's an American-born coach. And there's so many more who are coming up. So I, I know even for the culture, Tony, who was interviewing me, he's with the Soccer on the Street program in Atlanta. And that's a question he always has is about when are we going to see more American-born coaches? And I think we are. You know, it's happening now. We have a lot of coaches who are coming up. And again, part of my job as the chair of the Black Soccer Coaches Group is to make sure that I'm promoting and highlighting a lot of the coaches who are coming up and doing amazing work. But we're seeing a lot of that across the, we call it the triangle of blackness. I know Mike Siam, who's our communications director, kind of wrote an article about that. And it's similar to the way that Lincoln Phillips formed his national championship winning teams was finding players from the Caribbean, Africa, and here in America and bringing them together and having them play together. And he even talks about it in Redemption Song, which is kind of a, he did a 30 for, almost like a 30 for 30 for ESPN. Um, he talks about how hard it was to bring those groups together. And I think what we're seeing now, and what I love about my group is that there's this solidarity, there's this, there's this unity, and we're looking to link Black coaches from all across the globe. We're looking to grow. We're looking to make sure that people can see the importance and the value of representation and also making sure that we're growing and we're staying sharp and we're we're making sure we're as professional as we can be so that when these opportunities arise, we're ready to go. We're ready to do an amazing job. I am happy to be here in Canada when I look at what's happening in the U.S. and, and the leadership there and the opposition to immigration. And it's starting to look a little bit like Gil Scott Heron's Winter in America. So the work that you're doing is inspiring. But even in, in places, you know, that you're admittedly a fan of Brazil, France, mm -hmm. where they have deep soccer cultures, they still struggle even within their national teams with racism and the relationships between their, their immigrant players, their Brazilian born black players, their sort of Caucasian or white players. How do we use the work that you're doing as an opportunity to leapfrog them as, as we're building the underlying soccer culture, how do we skip past the, or, or how do we work through the other cultural divides that aren't soccer related? I think awareness is the first thing 
I think we all saw the uh, Series A campaign with the three monkeys. And when we're talking about representation and diversity, I would probably argue that they probably didn't have any people of color on a panel or a committee that came up with that decision. In leadership roles. Yeah. So I think that's why it's really important that we start to see more people of color in leadership roles so we can help lead that discussion so that it's not embarrassing like that. Because I think everyone's recognizing that there's an issue, but the way we're combating it is not always the best way to do it. I know we've had a task force here. They never seem to really stay together. But I think if you have people on those task force who it impacts and who care about the, the topic enough to be resilient, to be persistent with coming to a conclusion on how we can really deal with this in a strong and aggressive way so that they're we're anti-racism, we're anti-discrimination as a group. Because I'll tell you one of the things I love about United Soccer Coaches is that we have an advocacy council. I'm the black chair, we have a Latino chair, we have the women's chair, we have youth, high school. But when it comes to different issues, we're all in solidarity about just doing what's right. And at the end of the day, when we can put a team together that's like there's right and there's wrong, and we're all gonna fight hard to do the things that are right, especially in the world's game, it doesn't have to be a black or a white thing where people are uncomfortable to have these conversations. It has to do with just what's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you said that because I never realized it until people started talking about it. The teams that I, te- I, I grew up with were teams that had African and Caribbean players. And I never thought about it like that. So I grew up watching Arsenal. I didn't realize that Arsenal was a team that a lot of black people tend to latch on to because they have people who look like them. The same with me watching, you know, the French national team in Brazil, like there's a style to it that I just gravitated to. And now that I'm older, I was like, oh, that's what it is. It, it feels close to who I am and to my culture. So it's interesting that you said that because, man, that's probably why I fell in love with those teams. And that's why I fell in love with the game is because I saw something that felt like me. That's an interesting point that you just made with, with the French national team and with Brazil, why people can, tend to kind of latch on to those teams. One of the things that I was impressed with the work that you're doing when I when I came to some of your sessions at the convention was that you were building allies and allegiances, and it wasn't about we want just people who look a certain way to be in these positions. It's no, the, the game can actually bring us together to bridge our differences over the way that we look or the way that we've been raised or the circumstances that we grew up with to really relate with each other as humans. It also reminded me, you know, I was doing the research and thinking about a lot of the things that Anson Dorrance has said about the future of the game and futsal and gyms uh, and how that relates to the work that you're doing. And then I realized, no, there are probably people well, Anson has started to talk about it, there are probably people before Anson who have been talking about it who don't have as much of a voice. And then I was listening to For, for the Culture podcast and Cab Hakim is one of those people, right? The best. And he's developed a lot of national team people, like players that no one knows about. Because a lot of coaches who are doing amazing work, like you don't even know their names. And that's something again, that I'm trying to change. Um, his program is, is phenomenal. And Cab's also just someone that I enjoy doing podcasts with because he's hilarious. He knows so much about the game. And I'm just going to say this because he's the one who brought it to my attention when we were talking about kind of doing more of a global initiative to recruit Black coaches from outside of U.S. We were talking about the U.K. and I was like, why would coaches in the U.K. want to join us here in the States? And he's like, it's simply worse. 
And there were a lot of documentaries that we've been watching. And I'm looking at this, like there's only been two black coaches in the EPL. And there's, I mean, it really is worse there than it is here. So a lot of the things that we're talking about with the black soccer coaches here in the States, I mean, even in the Caribbean, man, in Europe and in some other places in Africa, it, it tends to be worse. So really coming together and just kind of shedding that awareness, but also just being able to support and build each other up is really important. And you talked about doing it across color lines. And that to me is the most important thing. I don't want our work to be something where it's outside of systems. I want it to be included. I want people to feel included. I want people to recognize that any work that I'm doing has to do with humanity. Although the word black is in there, the word black is in there only because I know if I ignore it, it's going to be ignored. So I have to address issues that are happening in the black community, but I welcome everyone to the table, everyone to feel welcome and included in having a discussion with what just the truth and the facts are of what's happening in the world. We always say soccer represents society. And that's my way of kind of doing my work to, to the racial divide is just trying to bring people together with this game. I think you're absolutely right. And that there's still a lot of work to do in society. If you think about even in the National Throwball League in America, sometimes called the NFL, Black coaches, <laughs> black coaches there, they have to have a record that's twice as good as a white coach to be able to keep their job. You know, women who are coaching in soccer talk about the fact that they have to work twice as hard. Sandra Doralyers, who's the general manager at PSV Eindhoven, or Carrie Taylor, who's coaching men at San Diego Loyal. And so I think that you're absolutely right that advocacy working across color lines doesn't mean we no longer say black. It means that we need to recognize where there are issues in the game, in society, and advocate to have them improved. So appreciate your work. In that context, how do you measure progress? So that was part of our conversation last night with our leadership group is that we need to make sure that we are getting the proper data statistics and, and being able to measure and get some metrics out there. So measuring for us, right now we're looking at the numbers of coaches from grassroots soccer, Black-owned businesses to state association, Blacks who are involved in it, who have their own programs, who's in MLS, who's in college soccer. We're just looking at where we are with the numbers now, and we're looking to see where we can grow. So we're just finding tools that we can use to start measuring where we are now versus where we are after the work that we intend on doing, many of the initiatives that we have. I would say even at United Soccer Coaches, they were having a panel today on the coaches' successful small business with a great broadcaster, Dean Linky, and three great coaches, but all people who look like me, all middle-aged white guys. At the last minute, they've added Yael, yeah. Bush West. <laughs> Good addition. <laughs> it's a great addition. But when you look at things like that, it seems like in 2020, even the person making the flyer would look at that and be like, this is not a good panel. <laughs> there, there's something missing here. <laughs> in their defense, we are working on webinars and stuff that are coming out from our group. So we're doing some panels with a college panel with like Kanani Galpin and Kia McNeil, who want to division championship at Brown and Trevor Banks, who's at Brown as well. And then Andrew Bonata, who's at Washington Adventist. So we're putting together a bunch of uh, sessions that will show black coaches um, or people in the black community who are involved. But yeah, those are tough conversations that we have as an advocacy council. 
But I appreciate it, United Soccer Coaches, that we have those conversations, you know. I'm glad you mentioned it because it's something I will have to mention too. But those are real conversations that we have to have in order to push forward. And I will say that I think the association is doing a good job of recognizing it once <laughs> once they kind of see some of that stuff. But it's funny you said that. I, I did notice that too. Well, it's, it's as you say about U.S. soccer, it's not active exclusion. We need to come to a point of active inclusion. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is important, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you a story that kind of supports what you're saying. The reason why I believe in the advocacy councils that forces me to look at things differently. For the longest time, I think my focus, and it will still remain that way, but my focus is on what issues and challenges we have with the Black soccer community. And that has to be my focus because it's my job to make sure that we get results within our group. But with the advocacy council, it forces me to look at similar issues that the Latinos have that the women's group has, that the disabilities group has, that the LGBTQ group has, and seeing places where there are commonalities, and then asking myself, am I also being supportive to those groups the way I would need support for my group? So it kind of opens my eyes in a way that it hasn't before, and it makes me listen to some of the different challenges that other groups have, because if I'm not aware of their issues, why should anyone be aware of mine? That's a part of it is recognizing within myself that sometimes I'm looking at my background and what matters to me the same way other people are looking at their background and what matters to them. Now, how can we come outside of that and say, this is right, this is wrong, whatever stance I have to take, it always has to be on what's, what's right for whatever humans within whatever group. And the awareness part is really important, but in order to be aware, we have to know what the issues are for, for everybody. So how do you evaluate your own work and understand whether your work in the world is improving or if there there are things you need to work on? We're doing, I'll start with this. We're starting a professional development course. We also have a pathway to leadership where we're starting to kind of get a list of all of our top coaches, all of our coaches who want assistance with their coaching education so that we can make sure that we have coaches who fit into the criteria for some of the top positions So there's so many different levels to the work that we're trying to do, but because we're coaching education with United Soccer Coaches, making sure that we have coaches who are taking the courses that are going to allow them to get the jobs that they need to, to make sure that they're getting the experience they need to, so that when there are job opportunities, we're making sure that we're plugging in our pool into some of those resources with the opportunities that we know are out there, and making sure that we're promoting the work that's being done that no one knows of because we have coaches whose resume and their body of work is outstanding but no one really knows about it so we're getting content out there as much as possible to kind of show the results we're getting we have coaches who are taking clubs overseas to completely bypass the US soccer system because if they were to play some of these DA teams you know they're beating them sometimes so it's kind of they're outside of the DA system So there's some friction with that. So they'd go overseas and play like a man city in a portal and beat them. So we have a lot of those things that are happening. So, you know, we have some relationships to mend here in the States, but we also are seeing some top-notch coaches who are going overseas. And that's telling me that they can coach. That's telling me that they know how to do player development. So then it's finding ways to make sure that the greater soccer audience knows who these people are, that their body of work is acknowledged. So There is a huge system that we're putting into place with our professional development, with our database, making sure that we know who our coaches is, where, what license they have, where they need to get to kind of, to get to some of the the, the goals that they have. For us, again, it's kind of knowing the coaches that we have, where they are versus where we're going to take them in coaching education, experiences, and job creation. 
Well, as society changes and the importance of credentialism declines, I would say that you wouldn't want to bring that coach into the system. You'd want to figure out how to support the work that he's already doing because bringing him into the system is just going to make him and his players mediocre, at least for now. Yeah, I agree. Personally, how do you evaluate your own work to decide whether or not you're doing better today than you were yesterday? I'll tell you what, um, we're growing like crazy. And I know there was a time when people didn't want to be involved in the work that we're currently doing. And the fact that my phone rings from morning to night with people wondering who we are and what we're doing because they're hearing about us is telling me that it's a step in the right direction. So for me, it's really kind of the most important thing right now in the season that we're in is just that foundational level. Again, everything's about sustainability for me. So making sure that we're setting something up that allows us to be successful, to make sure that we have regional divisions that are set up, people who have a clear idea on who we are, what our vision is, what our mission is, so that they can feel a part of that. So that as we're going into these communities and we're saying, this is what we're trying to do, we have people who fully understand that and want to be a part of that and will join us to help us to grow. So for me, that first phase of what I'm doing is what I call the foundation level. It literally is just making sure that we have all our pieces in place, that we're planting the proper seeds so that when it's time to grow into bloom, we're ready to grow into bloom. So we're really at that grassroots level with my leadership coming in in January of really making sure that everyone understands my vision and that they understand that it's a collaboration where everyone is going to be able to organically come in and do whatever it is that they feel passionate about with helping us grow the black soccer infrastructure in a way where we're understanding that this is about community over competition. So that's also a mentality that we have to change. I'm still at that real bottom level of making sure everyone understands the heart and the soul of who we are, the heart and the soul of the work that we're doing so that when we start getting active with operations ends of bringing in different courses, bringing in different programs, our people are ready. They know who we are. They know what we're doing. They know why we're doing it. And it all makes sense at the end of the day. I want there to be more people who look like you on the show. I find, in, in fact, even you and I, it took months yeah. for, us, for us to get together. And I find that I ask any mediocre white guy who's not had that much coaching success or even experience, they're happy to come on and, and think they're an expert, but that women, uh, black women in particular, black men, I have to do more work to convince them to come talk about their experience and, and share their insights, which are just as good, if not better than most other people's. What can I do personally? And I don't know even know if this, this part's going to make it onto the show or not, but you know, I really do want that to happen. And I want the show to be diverse because I think that's really important, not just from a representation standpoint, but from a from a societal standpoint and mm -hmm. from a quality standpoint you know as as a business person you can see the impact that the positive impact that diversity has on business results the, the data is there mm -hmm. how do i ask in a way that is more successful i just want to say that you being open to that is what's going to bring people to you because i don't think a lot of people have that same mentality so i'm just excited that 
your heart is set in wanting to do that and wanting to be a part of, of doing your part to make sure that we see diversity. Because some people don't care, you know, people just kind of do it just to do it. But I think when you have an intention that that's what you want to do, I think that that's, I mean, I'll get you whoever you want. Like, just let me know. If you want. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get you whoever you want from our community on your show. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'd like to end with a question about the sport itself and, and what it means to you. And it's what makes the game beautiful to you? The people, the community, but especially putting it in a place where the heart is at the center of it. And we're all doing what's right, because I, I really feel like when the heart and souls in this game, it's when it's the most beautiful thing. So it's the people, the community and the heart and soul of it all. Thank you so much, Nicole. I really enjoyed the discussion today. Thank you. This was great. Thank you for joining us today on The Beautiful Game. We hope you are ready to live, work and play better. To be a weasel yourself, smart and tenacious, if still sometimes underestimated. Join our community online at weaselsfc.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend.